This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, exploring pressing public management issues facing us today. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. From forging a unity of effort in Homeland Security, to strategizing today how to field the U.S. Army of tomorrow, to pursuing affordable housing, eliminating fraud, waste, and abuse in healthcare, and securing cyberspace, this edition of the Business of Government magazine delves into a diverse set of topics and public management issues facing us. With each edition, I present the leadership stories of a select group of public servants and complement their frontline experience with practical insights from thought leaders, merging real-world experience with practical scholarship. The purpose is not to offer a definitive solution to many of the management challenges facing government executives, but to provide a resource from which to draw practical, actionable recommendations on how best to confront such issues. The present always makes significant demands, but the risks and threats of the day cannot usurp the strategic focus needed to chart the future. Government leaders need not bow to the tyranny of the present, be doubled by the conundrum of balancing mission delivery with tightening budgets. For today's government leaders, it is imperative to work towards strategically executing their mission. Throughout the year, I've had the pleasure of speaking with key government executives and public sector leaders about their agencies, their agency accomplishments, and their vision of government in the 21st century. The leaders highlighted in this edition manifest the leadership and strategic foresight needed to meet their varied mission. Dr. Shantanu Agarwal, Director of the Center for Program Integrity within the Centers for Medicaid and Medicare Services at the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, leads the department's efforts to combat fraud, waste, and abuse in the federal health care programs. CPI uses innovative data technology and expertise to protect the integrity of our health care programs and safeguard taxpayer resources. Uh, so the Center for Program Integrity was created uh, just before the passage of the Affordable Care Act. But I think what was really important is that the ACA gave the center uh, far more expanded authorities. And actually, I think a lot of the mission of the center really derives now directly from the ACA. Our mission focuses on uh, the entire spectrum of waste, abuse, and fraud in Medicare and Medicaid. I think of it very simply as ultimately paying for the right services for our beneficiaries and ensuring the safety of these beneficiaries in both Medicare and Medicaid. Um, so it does have a really extensive mission, and we can talk more about how these the different uh, sides of this spectrum are handled differently. Tackling these challenges requires a focused strategic vision and the pursuit of key priorities. 
priority number one is, I think, coordination. So we've got to better coordinate Medicare and Medicaid and also coordinate across the private sector. Uh, the ACA actually required much of this coordination, um, and and then obviously we're we're working to extend the boundaries. But as decisions, uh, you know, administrative actions are taken, uh, say in the Medicare program, we want those to be reflected in Medicaid and vice versa, so that the net uh, is kind of. Uh, getting as closed as possible. We're not allowing issues to fall through the cracks. We have also uh, initiated a public-private partnership that allows us to conduct similar activities with private payers. Again, the notion being that a lot of the same issues and vulnerabilities that we experienced are also experienced by the private sector. And so we're working more closely now with the private sector to try to close those vulnerabilities across the entire healthcare system. I think number two, data is really important. Um, with the volumes, the, uh, the numbers that we talked about earlier, it is not possible for uh, manual or human intervention to look at every single claim, right? Four and a half million claims per day. So we've invested a lot in the last few years in real-time analytic systems that will look at all claims, that will uh, compare them against algorithms, trying to spot claims that are outliers or aberrant in some way. And I think we're going to continue to invest more in these systems um, that will allow us to actually deny claims that simply don't meet our payment policies, but then also allow us to focus on those claims and providers that really ought to be investigated or audited further because it just looks like the the, the percentage or the, the number of claims that are apparent is just very high. Um, so that's, I think, very important. Third, um, and often a tool the private sector is, We've got to just be very careful about the providers and suppliers that we choose to do business with in both Medicare and Medicaid. The ACA gave us a lot of tools in screening providers as they work to enroll in uh, Medicare and then also re-screening those providers on a regular basis so that we know that they continue to maintain their eligibility for the program. I don't think we can overstate the importance of this. Uh, since starting all of these new screening requirements uh, with the ACA, we have actually disenrolled over nearly 500,000 enrollments in the Medicare program alone. These are all providers now that can no longer build the program because they don't meet our requirements, um, basic requirements like having appropriate licensure to offer care to our patients, like not having disqualifying uh, criminal records. So, you know, these are things that we have implemented for the first time that we are now uh, constantly looking at in the background to make sure that providers in the program um, maintain their eligibility. And it's, uh, you know, something very basic. There's no point in auditing the claims of, of a provider if they simply don't meet the requirements to be in the program and to build the program and to see our patients. And finally, I think you know, a priority of mine is really to focus on timely and efficient action. I think, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we've got to focus on the right vulnerabilities and issues. We've got to use the right tools uh, at our disposal to address those issues and really drive to outcomes. Um, I don't like the notion of interminable audits or endless investigation. It's burdensome on providers. If we're not going to get to an end result, then we've got to call it and say, look, there's no, there's not a problem here. But otherwise, let's get to an end result. Let's take the action that's most appropriate and let's really be careful to address the entire spectrum of issues that we identify. To better combat fraud, waste, and abuse, and realize this strategic vision, Dr. Shantanu Agarwal, director of CMS's Center for Program Integrity, prioritized moving away from a pay-and-chase model to a prevention model. Whether the right language is around waste in healthcare or driving value in healthcare, I think there is a different way to approach these issues, but it'll essentially put us on the same page. So we are very focused on prevention. Um, I think I'd be remiss to mention that, you know, a lot of the work that's going on in the agency in other centers around uh, payment policy innovation or changing 
uh, the payment and delivery system are very important because it does inherently bring providers into this discussion. Providers are, are, are now incentivized in many ways to want to tackle waste in healthcare. Um, you know, I think there have been great physician vanguards in identifying where the waste is, but by building the right payment system around healthcare, we actually put us all on the same page and everybody's got equal incentive to drive that waste out. In the end, it's about driving the waste, fraud, and abuse out. And the fraud prevention system helps. So the fraud prevention system is the predictive analytics system. Um, it streams 4.5 million claims per day that are sent to Medicare. And I think what's very important is that it has the ability to process or have line of sight on all of the claims, right? Parts A, B, all the DME claims. And these are prior to the FPS. These claims were kind of handled independently of each other. So there was no linking of these claims, linking of the billing behaviors between these claims. That has been enormous uh, improvement over the past. So whereas before the FPS, we were uh, evaluating about 3% of claims prior to payment, now we're evaluating all of them. We can actually, using the system, identify claims that don't meet our payment requirements. They can just be denied. But even the ones that do appear to meet our payment requirements, the system helps to uh, evaluate further and make sure that there isn't something little off, little elaborate in those claims. We seek and work hard every day to try to increase that number even further. Um, But it's led to not only more identified savings, but also we've taken some significant actions as a result of the system. Over 900 providers have faced some kind of administrative action now because of uh, the work of the system, either starting a new uh, investigation or audit or supplementing something that already existed and, and just driving the efficiency of that work. Driving efficiency is at the heart of Nani Coloretti's work. She's the deputy secretary at the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, HUD, and spearheads the department's efforts to achieve operational excellence. With a mission focused on issues of affordable housing, responsible home ownership, homelessness, and contributing to economic development, Coloretti outlines HUD's key strategic priorities, its opportunity agenda, and its work to build a stronger HUD for the next 50 years. Our mission is to create strong and sustainable, inclusive communities and quality, affordable homes for all. And we do that in a number of ways. Um, But we were created in September 1965. So as you know, it's the 50th anniversary this September. It starts there. In the last 20 years alone, we've provided uh, public housing and rental assistance to over 35 million people. Yeah. So it's a great thing to be celebrating the 50th anniversary this year. And we were also 10 years right exactly out from Hurricane Katrina. And um, Hurricane Katrina really marked um, a a point in time at which HUD was also called upon for uh, disaster recovery. And we've done some, a lot of work in that, actually. And even in Hurricane Sandy got appropriations to do recovery and resilience. HUD has a challenging mission, especially in the midst of what some have called an affordable housing crisis. Deputy Secretary Coloretti outlines these challenges. So um, the top two challenges, and then there's a third one that I'll talk about, really are the challenge of, I think, the federal uh, government right now. And it's how do you sustain great work and get results while uh, you are just going to continue to work in a constrained budget picture? One is promoting leadership, increasing collaboration at the same time, increasing accountability to ourselves, to our stakeholders, and to each other, and um, focusing on customer service, and then also improving resource management, which I think is the trick to sort of try to do more with less. We've put together a set of priorities that I can sort of talk about in further detail when we talk about the deep dive. We also did a, the secretary and I did a full court press on the employee viewpoint survey, not to improve the score, but actually just to improve the participation. 
Now, let me just say there's a lot more work to be done. Challenges can beget surprises. So what has surprised Nani Colaretti since becoming HUD's deputy secretary? Look, I, I shouldn't have been surprised by this, but what I found when I got there was just an incredible sort of and deep-seated pride and ownership of, of the work of the agency and in the mission. And it's among the strongest I've seen in the federal service and, uh, you know, helping people find homes, solving veterans' homelessness, solving homelessness for chronic and families. Those are very big, lofty goals, but we are making progress on them. And so um, there's sort of this duality of, of having a really difficult and challenging, um, you know, sort of federal space to be working in to do that, but also real pride and ownership. Pride and ownership are core to realizing HUD's opportunity agenda. And so when Secretary Castro got to HUD, and he got there before me, he got there about a, year, a little over a year ago, he distilled uh, their work down into six goals, which I'll tell you about right now. And then I'll also tell you about our agency priority goals, because those are the ones we track on performance.gov. So that'll kind of give you a sense of what we're looking at and monitoring every quarter. But the six goals are really some of the things I've been talking about so far, helping families and individuals secure quality housing, by promoting responsible home ownership and expanding affordable rental markets, so home ownership and rental. Another goal is to end veterans and chronic homelessness, and we've also added ending family homelessness. So we have targets and years by which we'll end those. That's a very lofty goal. A third goal is to level the playing field for all Americans from all walks of life by fighting housing discrimination. I mentioned the Fair Housing Act to you before. That's some of our key tools for that. Another goal is to strengthen rural, tribal, and urban communities through place-based initiatives, which I can talk about a little bit more later. A fifth goal is to address climate change by preparing communities for extreme weather and other disasters and strengthening their economic and environmental resilience. So we have a whole resiliency set of work that we're doing. And then the sixth goal, which is my favorite goal, Mm -hmm. is to build a stronger HUD, (laughs) (laughs) which I mentioned before, um, by improving leadership, accountability, and transparency, and focusing on better resource management. Alejandro Mayorkas, Deputy Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, is charged with leading its Unity of Effort initiative. The overarching goal of this effort is twofold, to deepen understanding of DHS's mission space and to empower the department's components to effectively execute its operations. Over the last year, DHS has pursued this unity of effort against the backdrop of challenges, including tightening budgets, low morale, and complex oversight structures. And I'm sure you have heard and others have learned of our unity of effort initiative. And I think um, bringing the different expertise uh, to bear, bringing the different devotion of resources to bear in a unifashion to ensure that we achieve our mission most effectively as well as our the most careful stewards of our resources, I think is our greatest area of focus from a management perspective right now. And we've seen tremendous strides under the Secretary's leadership. One of the most, I think, compelling examples of that is the southern border campaign, where we've taken all of the different assets of the department that have traditionally or historically been devoted to border security and all its ancillary concerns and brought them to bear in a more unified and cohesive fashion than ever before. And so we don't necessarily have Customs and Border Protection working its mission 
alongside but separate from the United States Coast Guard and alongside and but separate from immigration and customs enforcement and so on and so forth. But we have the, all of those resources brought to, to bear in a coordinated, holistic way. I think its impact will be far greater and the, the proper allocation of resources will be more effective. Mm-hmm. It's really a transformational effort, if I may. Leading a unity of effort across such an expansive department can be fraught with some interesting surprises. I think the breadth uh, of the work of the Department of Homeland Security is um, uh, a, a great surprise. I, I, I read of it. <laughs> uh, I knew of it. Mm-hmm. But I didn't live it. Uh, as much as I do now. And if one takes a look at the challenges we've faced, put aside the successes, which are many, but if one takes a look at the challenges we face, the unexpected events of the past year or so, take Ebola, for example, Mm -hmm. uh, that uh, tragic uh, phenomenon that afflicted three African nations so severely was front and center in our portfolio of work for quite some period of time because we were the front line of screening individuals that travelers from the three countries uh, in Africa. And so we devoted considerable effort and energy given our mission set uh, to that phenomenon. If you had asked me three years ago mm-hmm. what, um, what role the department would play in response to the Ebola crisis, I probably would have answered somewhere on the periphery, but but not so learning uh, what our department does. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, I, I think it's just a, a fascinating uh, breath. It's, it's both a challenge and an incredible opportunity. Deputy Secretary Mayorkas underscores that challenges portend incredible opportunity. And Mayorkas sees the opportunity to get DHS off the GAO high-risk list. A few things, uh, Michael. One, uh, GAO recognized us as a model in addressing the high-risk challenges. That was articulated expressly in its uh, last report. Um, And uh, we're very proud of that. And we could not do it without the tremendous work of our people, but quite frankly, without the tremendous leadership in GAO, both with respect to its uh, controller general, um, Jean Dodaro, and the individual who uh, oversees our portfolio, uh, George Scott. They are tremendous partners. They hold our feet to the fire with respect to the challenges that we have, but they call balls and strikes with respect to the work that we're doing effectively and the work that we're not. Uh, I became very, very involved in addressing the GAO high-risk items because of their critical nature Uh, to the development of our department and the well-being of our department. And I met with our team. I looked at our timelines, and I asked – the first question I asked was, how can these timelines be accelerated? Because we're talking about matters that are not only high risk but critical in nature. And uh, our team doubled down, and and we accelerated quite a number uh, of our timelines, and we worked very closely with GAO to address the challenges. It, It requires a lot of investment. A lot of investment of expertise in human capital, and it requires a close partnership with GAO, and we've enjoyed all of the above. Major General John Ferrari, Director of Program Analysis and Evaluation in the Office of U.S. Army's Deputy Chief of Staff, G-8, plays an integral role in shaping the U.S. Army in an increasingly uncertain environment. The office he leads develops and explains the Army's program, 
and its future direction. So the uh, G8, it's, uh, you know, that's military speak really for structure, modernization, and resources. And uh, in the Army, we call that programs. Uh, and it's got really three missions. Uh, one is to oversee the resourcing and modernization of the equipment in the Army, our combat weapon systems and platforms. Uh, the second is to do warfighting assessments and analysis, and we have an organization at Fort Belvoir that does that. And then there's the part of the G8 that that, that I work for, which is called uh, programs, and really programs is really about the intersection of resources and policy and strategy. And so, so we take the Army's budget and parse it out. So I've got uh, three functions that, that I have as an organization. So my first is, uh, as we discussed, is to build and defend the Army's program. Uh, so each year we look five years out and we allocate resources between manpower, modernization, and readiness. And so my function is to help the Army and the leadership, the secretary and the chief, build that program, submit it to the secretary of defense, and then undergo a uh, several-month review of that program. I have two other functions. One is uh, we hold the authoritative database for resourcing for the Army that supports that function. And so it's uh, got many, many data elements and a lot of uh, technology involved in that. So we do that, and I've got a cell of government civilians that, that work that. And then my third mission is to provide the leadership of the Army, the Secretary, the Chief, and other senior leaders with an independent assessment of the program. So the staff actually owns the money and the functions, we synchronize the program, uh, but then we also kind of give an independent assessment of what the staff has said and that they're costing. Moving in the right direction rests on a clear strategic vision, and Major General Ferrari elaborates. So the Army has recently put out a new Army operating concept, uh, which is really about how the Army sees itself meeting the challenges of the nation over the next 10 years. And if you, just a quick history lesson, if you think back uh, to the 80s during the Cold War when I came in, we had what's called Airland Battle Doctrine, which was really focused on defeating the Soviet threat in case of an attack. And it was a, a large mass army, hundreds of thousands lined up from the, the north of Germany to the south, ready to defend and act against the, the Soviet threat. What we then went to in the 2000s with the operations in Iraq and Afghanistan was different than, but similar in that we put a large part of the army into one country, but instead of operating as a very large unit to defend a very large nation-state attack, the army was operating in a very decentralized manner against a more insurgent-type threat, but it was still a very, you know, 150,000 people in one country focused on a single mission, operating decentralized uh, and in small units rather than large units. Where the Army sees itself going and where we've got to change to now is, and as we talked about a bit, is really operations around the world where you've got small groups of people in spread out throughout the entire world doing radically different things. The Army is also trying to do more with less, and Major General John Ferrari explains how the service develops the investment strategy across the whole enterprise. We look across really three broad portfolios, and we try to balance those. So the first is manpower. So the one thing about the Army that's different than the other services, uh, the other services man their equipment. In the Army, we equip our manpower. So the Army is people. We are soldiers, soldiers supported by a civilian workforce that organizes, trains, and enables it to go out and conduct operations. So what we generally first do as an Army is figure out 
what structure we need to accomplish the missions and how many people you have to do that. Because that then takes up roughly about half of our budget on the military side. So once you decide then what structure you have, you then have to determine the capabilities and the modernization for it. What type of equipment will it have? How will you upgrade that equipment? How do you manage the investment portfolio? And the investment portfolio makes up depending upon where you are in the kind of budget cycle, uh, roughly 18 to 22% of the budget. So the other 30% of the budget then is our readiness funding. And in our readiness funding, that's everything from training to education to the logistics needed to support the force and the installations needed to run them. And so the real question and, and, and the real analysis that we do in pa is, well, how do you balance that? And what does balance even mean? Well, the question is, well, okay, so how does an organization shrink by 20%? Do you take risk in readiness? Well, the challenge we talked about, well, the world may or may not cooperate with that, right? Do you take risk in modernization so you don't modernize, right? Well, there are threats out there that are modernizing their forces. And as weapon systems become more infused with technology, right, technology is spinning so fast, they require more money to upgrade them. And then how big do you have the force. And so we have to, you know, we're in the process of shrinking the army from what was the regular army with 570,000 down to 490 at the end of this year. So in the last four years, we will have taken out 80,000 soldiers from the force. And once you take the manpower and the structure out, it's very hard. That's a long-term decision. I mean, it takes years and years to build it back. So it's fairly irreversible and not very elastic. If you get it wrong, they have to pay the price of the wrong decisions. Next up, pursuing risk management in government, a leadership imperative. When the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour, returns. How can DOD improve its acquisition processes? Check out the latest IBM Senate report, Eight Actions to Improve Defense Acquisition. The authors emphasize the urgency of acquisition reform in DOD, given budgetary constraints and security challenges, finding that DOD will need to gain every possible efficiency while resisting the temptation to buy defense on the cheap. This report continues the IBM Center's interest in better understanding and improving the federal government acquisition process. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Government leaders and managers face major challenges today, including fiscal austerity, citizen expectation, the pace of technology and innovation, and a new role for governance. These challenges influence how government executives lead today, but more importantly, how they can be prepared for tomorrow. The IBM Center Report, Six Trends Driving Change in Government, offers a path forward for government executives responding to the ever-increasing complexity and challenges they face today. Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. It is a leadership imperative for government executives to mitigate the potency of uncertainty by managing the realities of risk. Employing an enterprise risk management process can assist leaders in doing just that. This forum presents government leaders with insights, recommendations, and best practices drawn from two recent IBM Center reports that focus on managing risk in government. The first contribution to this forum comes from Doug Webster and Tom Stanton and their report for the IBM Center, Improving Government Decision-Making Through Enterprise Risk Management. There are various definitions of risk, 
So what is risk, and why is risk so often viewed in negative terms? And when can risk also refer to positive action? Here's Doug Webster. Well, probably the most direct answer to that is that risk, if you look it up in the dictionary, is almost always couched in negative terms. So it's a threat, some vulnerability, and so on. And as a result, folks involved in risk management tend to look at, or not necessarily those only involved in risk management, but people that are impacted by risk management look at it in those terms. However, that's a very narrow context because you also need to consider what's the trade-offs, what's the rewards for, for going after various risks. And so ISO 31000, International Standard on Risk Management, uh, defines risk as the uncertainty of objectives. Now, that that is a different definition of risk, but that having been said, it's not consistent with the other definition if for the other definition you also include what are the risks and the rewards. The point is that both of those need to be considered jointly. Doug Webster highlights some of the most compelling reasons why the federal government should be adopting and is adopting enterprise risk management. Well... To the degree that the federal government is already involved in risk management, and I would suggest every organization is involved in risk management in some fashion, it has traditionally and typically been within various functional stovepipes. So, for example, the financial chief financial officer certainly worries about getting a clean audit opinion. The CIO worries about cybersecurity, et cetera. However, when you manage risks within these functional silos and you don't come together collectively, you don't have an ability to prioritize at the overall enterprise level across those functional stovepipes. Moreover, you don't have the ability to identify cross-functional impacts where uh, the CIO, for example, mitigating one risk may be creating uh, unknowingly risks in other parts of the organization. You don't have the ability to prioritize resources across all of those. And finally, you, don't, you are unable to develop that portfolio view of risk across the enterprise to ensure it's consistent with a risk appetite for that organization. Webster also defines for us enterprise risk management. I think that's an extremely important question because one of the big frustrations I have is enterprise risk management these days is a term that's thrown out there very loosely Mm -hmm. and very poorly understood by so many people who use that term. And that doesn't uh, restrict itself only to those in the federal government where the term is newer than it is in the private sector, but also in the private sector. I've talked to folks within the risk management profession that don't understand and who use the term enterprise risk management and really don't understand the principles. To, because for many people, enterprise risk management is simply glorified risk management, meaning it's still conducted within functional silos and it's done really well, but they have not taken that next step to try and integrate those across those silos. In some cases, it's it's the term is used when what they're really talking about is internal controls. And enterprise risk management and risk management in general, for that matter, is much broader and than simply internal controls. Uh, so I, the, the metaphor that I, I like to use because it works for me is, is the fact that if you had all the various functional stovepipes, whether it belonging to a functional head like a CIO, a CFO, so on, or a, or an, a bureau level head or a program office, represented by a brick, the metaphor I use is a pile of bricks is not equal to a brick wall. (laughs) ERM takes what you have in risk management today, and hopefully you've got a complete um, set of processes that are focused functionally, programmatically, et cetera, but then takes it a further step and brings the mortar, if you will, to those bricks to turn in a brick wall to generate a portfolio view. Without that, 
you're really not talking about enterprise risk management. You're simply talking about traditional risk management. Tom Stanton underscores the value of risk management and explains how the effective use of risk management strategies can improve senior leadership decision-making and act as a tool to strengthen it. Well, the whole point of risk management, enterprise risk management in particular, is that decision makers consider both the rewards Mm -hmm. and the risks of any decision. Mm -hmm. In my view, one of the important functions of enterprise risk management is to ensure the flow of communications to the decision maker. They need to have the information that is directly relevant to the decision they want to make. And that means communications up and down the hierarchy, also across the silos to bring the powerful business unit heads into the conversation to be sure the decision maker knows everything that they need to know. In improving government decision making through enterprise risk management, Webster and Stanton describe six challenges facing government leaders and six steps that government leaders can take to successfully implement enterprise risk management. You can download a free copy of this report at businessofgovernment.org. There are approximately 75 days between presidential election and the inauguration of a new president. This is considered the presidential transition period. It is a time of opportunity and hazards for an incoming administration. The transition from campaigning to governing requires that presidential policies be transformed from rhetoric into an actionable agenda and then into concrete results. Martha Kumar, author of Before the Oath, How George W. Bush and Barack Obama Managed a Transfer of Power, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to discuss her latest book on presidential transitions. There's not a long history to it of a formal transition. The first one where a president really thought out beforehand when he knew he wasn't going to be running for re-election, and it was important to him the quality of the information he left behind was Truman. Truman wanted to make certain whoever his successor would be would not be left in the same situation he was when he became president on the death of Franklin Roosevelt because he had been in as vice president a short period of time, coming in January 20th, and then in early April, Franklin Roosevelt died and Truman became president. And he found that there was a great deal that he didn't know about what was going on in government, uh, particularly relating to the war. And the biggest item was the development of the atomic bomb, and he had been unaware of that. So what he did is he wrote both um, Adlai Stevenson and uh, General Eisenhower about coming into the White House. And let me let me read sure, to you please. the exchange, because in a way it's in, it's important in this transition, this past 2008 transition, because I think what had happened, what Truman tried to bring about, bringing the candidates in early happened in 2008, but it happened in a different way. It was the representatives were brought in early. So in a way, it it kind of closed that circle of what Truman had tried to do. So on April 13th, 1950, August, I'm sorry, August 13th, 1952, the president wrote to the candidates, I'll have General Walter Bedell Smith and uh, the Central Intelligence Agency give you a complete briefing on foreign situation. Eisenhower wrote in, in response, 
in my current position as standard bearer of the Republican Party and of other Americans who want to bring about a change in the national government, it's my duty to remain free to analyze publicly the policies and acts of the present administration whenever it appears to me to be proper and in the country's interest. I believe our communications should be only those which are known to all the American people. Consequently, I think it would be unwise and result in confusion with the public mind if I were to attend the meeting in the White House to which you have invited me. <laughs> and Truman sure was not happy. happy. <laughs> no, he wasn't. And you know that his, uh, his, his response was uh, going to be pretty strong. It was um, a handwritten response, and uh, those he could mail when he was uh, uh, passing a mailbox on his morning walks. I'm extremely sorry that you have allowed a bunch of screwballs to come between us. You have made a bad mistake, and I'm hoping it won't injure this great republic. Um, But what he wanted to do was make sure that uh, both candidates were uh, were well-informed. But um, the politics at the time didn't didn't call for it. Today, the situation is different. And in 2008, Josh Bolton, who was the chief of staff and in charge of the transition operations for uh, President Bush, had representatives of both the um, Obama and McCain campaigns come into the White House and work on several different items that were going to be important um, to get straight before a new president took office. So they really thought through getting things in order and coming into the White House. What factors contributed to the increase in importance of presidential transitions Here's Martha Kumar. I think there's an uh, increase in the importance of the presidency. Okay. And the president is, is a world leader and the sense of time, that you just don't have time. You want to be knowledgeable when you come into office. And others in the political system and the public want that as well. Mm-hmm. And I think in 2008, one of the big factors were the attacks on the United States on September 11th. And a lot flowed from that. Congress passed legislation that uh, the Intelligence Reform uh, and Terrorism Prevention Act uh, allowed for early security clearances for people coming in to work on a transition. And those were important because these security clearances take a while. And now you have so many people that are working on a transition, and then many of them will go into the government itself in other uh, positions. So you want to get that done as early as you can. And the administration made sure that that happened. Kumar describes the characteristics of a well-prepared, successful transition. The... 2008-9 transition uh, was a particularly good one because both sides uh, took very seriously. I think one of the uh, factors involved in a good transition is that the president himself is involved and that the president directs the transition. And the kind of work that you need to do requires long lead time. And so he talked to Josh Bolton in December of 2007 about the transition and told him that with two wars, it was really important to have the best transition ever. 
Most presidents will say they want to have the best transition ever, but the question is when they say it. Mm -hmm. Saying it in December of 2007 is a lot different than saying it the November of the presidential election when you don't have time to do very much. So with that charge, then Bolton was able to um, plan out what kinds of things needed to be done and getting a head start on it. And at each point, trying to get in early. It is critically important for presidential candidates to engage in early transition planning. Martha Kumar elaborates. Uh, for a sitting administration, early means that you can start. Uh, you can start as, say, Steve Hadley did in in late 2007, to prepare the information on the uh, on the memoranda, the national security memoranda. And I think one of the things that uh, the uh, Bush administration did too is. Um, they laid out how important they thought that planning for transition was. Clay Johnson, who had, who was the deputy for management at the Office of Management and Budget and had been executive director of uh, George Bush's transition into office, uh, he said that it was irresponsible not to be planning early. And so they tried to set that stage uh, to help the candidates so that the hubris, um, the hubris argument would not really uh, be something that, uh, that was important to people. And I think people understand that you really do have to have planning. And, uh, but on the other hand, you know, people, are, candidates are reluctant uh, because they don't want to uh, look as if they're assuming that they're going to win. Um, but early planning is important even for the campaign because if you can think through what your goals are, put your campaign goals together in relationship to what your priorities are going to be governing, that really is very useful. In Washington, D.C., policy formation tends to get much of the focus with management and implementation taking a back seat. What can be done to put management and management-related issues on a higher station. Here's Martha Kumar. With Republicans, it tends to have um, uh, to have more of a be more of a priority than it is with Democrats. But I think in this administration, one of the things that happened was even if they had had a strong management agenda, um, that they had to deal with financial crisis, and that was just crucial. I think generally it's just uh, um, it is so crucial to everything you do, but people often work on a uh, a calendar of of you know what's happening next week, what's happening uh, next month, and not thinking about um, how they're going to implement all of it. Next up, insights from leaders when the special edition of the Business of Government magazine returns. In a world inundated with all kinds of information, timely, relevant, and more predictive data can drive better decision-making. Law enforcement agencies are at the forefront in leveraging data and using innovative software to generate predictions that help police prevent crime. What is predictive policing? How can using analytics make us safer? Check out the IBM Center report, Predictive Policing, Preventing Crime with Data and Analytics by Jen Bachner, and find out. 
Download your free copy at businessofgovernment.org. What do agency leaders need to know about the federal acquisition process? What are some of the key federal procurement trends? And how can agency leaders overcome today's acquisition challenges? Check out the new Senate report, A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition, by Trevor Brown and find out. The report offers practical recommendations for improving federal acquisition. Download your free copy of A Guide for Agency Leaders on Federal Acquisition at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Welcome back to the Business of Government magazine, a special edition of the Business of Government Hour. In this final segment, I want to introduce government executives who share their insights on the work they do and the efforts they lead. Their respective missions force them to look ahead, and although they come from diverse disciplines, they are all focusing on finding what works. Ellen Herbst, Chief Financial Officer and Assistant Secretary of Administration at the U.S. Department of Commerce, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to share her insights on the management challenges she faces. The first thing that our mission leader said was we need to be able to hire faster and we need to acquire things faster. And once I got over my broken heart, um, I realized that they had handed us a great gift, which was those mission leaders had told us how important what we do is, right? If the first thing out of their mouths was help me, essentially hiring someone and buying something is really about bringing in resources to accomplish the mission, right? So they said that's so important that we've got to do better at it. Well, this becomes our burning platform. If you do shared services right, you will get at minimum cost avoidance and you will likely get cost savings if you do it right. But that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it is to make sure that we can continue to deliver excellent mission support to these important missions in an environment where our resources are going to continue to be constrained, where our people are, are, you know, are continuously asked to do more with limited budgets. And so I think the focus on delivering effective mission support will lead us to a better outcome and will still save us money in the long run. And so you don't have to make cost cutting the primary reason you're doing it. We picked four areas in mission support for our HR acquisition, IT, and financial management. And then we put a, a project in place that the board of directors signed off on that was built on data. So we gathered a lot of data in those four areas, including an enormous effort on voice of the customer. We analyzed that data against the criteria we were using about how would we change the way we're doing these things based on this data if our goal is better, more consistent service delivery, better accountability, better uh, uh, transparency. The teams that did the work were the people who actually do the work. And... It was an amazing thing to watch and lead as the project sponsor because these folks who you might think were more, you know, they might be concerned about I'm goring my own ox. Mm -hmm. um, They just did amazing work. And they came up with some um, terrific recommendations based on the data and the data analysis. And we were supported by good contract support and so forth. But those recommendations were presented to the uh, board of directors, and we are now moving forward into, okay, 
great recommendations, now the real hard work begins, which is the detailed planning for the concepts of operations, the detailed implementation planning, and then on to execution. So we're really just in the detailed planning stages at this point. I've been fortunate enough to be able to participate in the larger government-wide conversation about shared services, and I am, I think, one of the more, you know, I, I represent one of the passionate ends of the spectrum around this is so important to do for the reasons we've talked about already. Uh, these are important functions. We are not on a sustainable path in terms of the resources we need. Uh, the investment in systems and technology and automation that has to be done to either renew our existing investment or to drive even more investment in technology to help these areas. If we try to do it on our own, each one of us on our own, we will never get there. I think in the area of HR, um, we have opportunities there. We have to be, you have to be very thoughtful in HR because you're talking about the core of bringing people in, supporting them throughout their careers, uh, de- you know, helping operational managers lead and develop them. So you, you have to be prepared to do your homework and be very thoughtful about how shared services can uh, provide a better outcome in those areas. And, and I think, um, that's one where we need to take our time and invest in the analysis of what the best way to approach it is. But that is another area, I think, that is ripe for shared services. And again, in the area of information technology, which is probably the area the government has already done a number of things in, but there's still so many areas that are ripe for whether it is the buying So you go back to strategically sourcing, whether it is sharing the resource around data centers and so forth. Um, We have to do this. Um, And I think as as both the CFO but as someone who's responsible for delivering these mission services, it's our responsibility to put these things on a more sustainable path for the future. While the U.S. Department of Justice has a varied and wide-ranging mission, its core objective is to protect the American people. Information and technology have an important and powerful role to advance, protect, and serve the DOJ mission. Joe Klemovich, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Justice, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to provide his insights on DOJ's IT strategy. Priorities there are um, exceed customer expectations. I don't want to just meet customer expectations, although that may be a necessary precursor, but um, I want to exceed customer expectations. And that means a strong customer engagement, strong um, customer service and uh, in, in the operations, and really being able to act as a trusted advisor to uh, customers. We want to manage taxpayers' money wisely. That's one of the things that I think we're accountable for here. Uh, so that means strong um, accountability, performance. I want to enable innovative sharing of services and information, essentially acting as a service broker, building a trusted environment for, for data uh, management and interoperability, and then pro- promoting um, you know, data and information accessibility to uh, not only with the, the private sector and so on, but is, is to foster um, better collaboration within the 40-plus components within the department. I want to protect our, our uh, you know, fourth one is protect our, our mission, uh, combating uh, cyber threats, enhancing the uh, identity, credential, access management, Preventing and detecting uh, insider threats and then being able to apply uh, analytics in, in near real time uh, so that we can uh, react faster. And the last one, but, but not least, is building that future-ready uh, workforce. So how do we attract high-quality, diverse workforce? How do we t- retain and cultivate workforce with the right skills? 
And then how do we build a culture of engagement and reward uh, innovation? So those are, those are our priorities that are called out in our strategic plan. Making this IT strategy a reality is quite challenging. Well, I think cybersecurity has to be my number one challenge, as I think it is uh, with most uh, federal CIOs. The cyber attacks are increasing in uh, aggression, sophistication, bypassing a lot of traditional uh, security uh, tools. I'm really focusing on strengthening and making sure that our security posture is as is, is good as it can be to defend against these attacks and protect our sensitive law enforcement, national security, and other government personnel uh, data uh, as well as just helping protect the, the integrity of our, our mission systems. So that's our number one challenge. I think the recruiting and retaining highly qualified IT personnel is probably my, my second big effort. And the last one i just close with is, is I think we, we have to operate in, in an uncertain budget climate. And in that uncertain budget climate, I have to continually look to improve the quality of IT services uh, while driving down the cost of those uh, services. How has the Federal Information Technology Acquisition Reform Act, or FATARA, expanded the role of the Federal Chief Information Officer? Joe Klemovich explains. FATARA uh, strengthens the CO's responsibility and accountability for, for agency IT programs. Um, from my perspective, um, FATARA is a great opportunity for CIOs to, to really, it really solves a lot of the highest level challenges uh, in the federal IT space. You know, it increases uh, responsibility and accountability. It gives the CIOs the tools that we need to uh, drive real innovation and realize uh, efficiencies. However, um, the CIOs really now are being forced to take ownership of their IT portfolios. I mean, there's no, uh, you have an issue in your department and you can't say, I didn't know about it and or what's going on there. So um, it does achieve, I think, that aspect. And, and so the CIOs really need to step up and, and take uh, responsibility. As a nation, we are faced with pervasive cyber threats. Malicious actors, including those at the nation-state level, are motivated by a variety of reasons that include espionage, political and ideological beliefs, and financial gain. The U.S. Department of Homeland Security, DHS, and its National Protection Programs Directorate works to assist federal agencies to understand and manage cyber risk, reduce the frequency and impact of cyber incidents, and readily identify network security issues and take action. Dr. Phil Schneck, Deputy Undersecretary for Cybersecurity and Communications within DHS, joined me on the Business of Government Hour to provide her insights into her role and the work she does. So the National Protection and Programs Directorate of the Department of Homeland Security, the mission is to lead the national effort to secure and enhance the resilience of the nation's infrastructure against cyber and physical threats. And that's very important because as we go forward under the vision of my boss, Undersecretary Suzanne Spaulding, we look at, at all threats and the consequences. Trying to fulfill its cyber protection mission is quite challenging, but it offers a host of opportunities. Dr. Phyllis Schneck continues. So I'm going to give you my top three priorities okay. because those lead to the challenges. Yes. Number one is building trust. Trust with our stakeholders, and I consider them customers, whether that's the federal civilian government. We mitigate uh, cyber risk, cyber threat, and response. So that's our responsibility across federal civilian government, and private sector. And my first priority therein for those customers is building their trust so that they will share with us an event because every time we learn something, we can use that to protect so many others uh, and so that they will trust us to come in and clean up an event uh, with our experts. And trust is also a challenge, as you know, in this environment. Uh, I hear from my private sector colleagues, there, and I know from my experience, there, there's never been a harder time 
to share information or even in some cases internationally be affiliated with the U.S. government as a private company. Uh, But there's also never been a more urgent time to put information together, to put knowledge together, to connect the dots, uh, to have that resilience in our infrastructures, both cyber and physical. So that's both a priority of mine to build that trust, top priority, uh, and a challenge. My second priority has been building situational awareness. And that means every time we protect something, we should learn from that event and use that to push back out most as rapidly as possible into the federal civilian government and private sector using people and machines. Uh, the third, of course, is leveraging the cybersecurity framework that comes to us from the President's Executive Order 13636. Three winters ago, it was released in, I believe, February of 2014, a few months after I took this job. And I believe using this framework has helped us to get these messages across in an executive way, as well as to give uh, both state and local and small to medium business something from which to work in best practices in cyber so that we can not only simplify it uh, for them to use and be safer, but also get it to hundreds of thousands of boardrooms across the country and hopefully across the world. Dr. Phyllis Schneck has a vision on how to combat cyber threats in real time, and it takes the form of a weather map using data and analytics to get a full-scale, real-time model of potential cyber threats, predicting cyber as opposed to climate threats. So this is one of my favorite topics. I studied uh, high-speed tornado forecasting with high-performance computing before I get into security. So this is where some of my analogies are coming from. So if you think about a weather map, what's a weather map? Everybody can picture one. probably looked at one this morning. It'll show you visually what's happening very quickly. There is a lot of information that goes into that, There's only a little bit that you really need to decide how you're going to do your day. So you don't need even some of the the most detailed information on upper atmospheric behavior or even uh, where they got the humidity. You just need to know if it's going to rain, if you're going to wear a hat, simple things. And that's very much what we need in cyber. So from a privacy and civil liberties perspective, we can literally go to those bare indicators. A great example that I I got from a colleague was he told me that he he grew up in the Midwest And he used to run for cover when the sky turned yellow. So yellow is the indicator. What it really means meteorologically is that there's likely uh, frozen dirt in the upper atmosphere. And in the summer, if you're seeing an indication of freezing and you have really hot air below you, that creates convective behavior and that creates bad storms. That's the exact way we want to look at cybersecurity. So we have our data that we are looking and collecting from the private sector from the government into our single portal in the NKIC. And that single portal is so important. Instead of having nine locations for this, having it all in one place creates that weather map very quickly. Tornadoes happen fast. Cyber happens faster. I hope you've enjoyed the perspectives, insights, recommendations, and profiles presented on today's The Business of Government magazine, a special edition of The Business of Government Hour. You may download or order a free copy of the latest Business of Government magazine, at businessofgovernment.org and find out how the business of government is not business as usual. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org. What is the U.S. Department of Justice's information technology strategy? How is the DOJ keeping pace with transformative IT advances? 
What is the DOJ doing to build a future-ready workforce? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Joe Klimovich, Chief Information Officer at the U.S. Department of Justice. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio 1500 a.m. 